from Wyoming Public Media. This, 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 is, this is spoken. Spoken. Spoken words. Spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Looking at and engaging with these women's stories, I think slowly started to make me feel like there was room for me to be an interpreter and a religious thinker and to not, you know, sort of have to settle for theology that felt diabolical to me. <laughs> Adrian Shirk is an essayist and memoirist and currently teaches in the Pratt Institute's creative writing program. Her first book was published in 2017. It's called And Your Daughters Shall Prophesy, Stories from the Byways of American Women and Religion. It's a project she began during her time in the MFA in creative writing program here at the University of Wyoming when she encountered a problem that'll be familiar to many writers. Like a lot of creative projects, I didn't really know for a while what it was I was making. Um, And in fact, I had arrived in Laramie that summer of 2012 with a completely different project in mind. And then I kind of got stuck. And so I thought, all right, in the meantime, I'm going to pick up this weird little just side project hobby essay I've been working on about the famous American astrologer Linda Goodman. And I'm just going to work on that for a little while just to get me just to get me in the groove of my new life in the MFA program. The resulting book, And Your Daughters Shall Prophesy, is a nonfiction account of the lives and theologies of American women prophets and mystics. And it's a memoir about Shirk's own spiritual path. During her research for that initial essay about Linda Goodman, Shirk was drawn to the astrologer's innovative blend of different kinds of spiritual practices and traditions. And that's when the project became personal for Shirk. At the time, I think I really needed to have an encounter like that with a spiritual thinker like that because I had been moving through a bunch of different Protestant traditions over the last few years. And I had kind of come to a point where I was so sort of demoralized by what was available to me or what I thought was available to me in terms of and just in terms of these different, you know, theological communities I was a part of. And so I think encountering Linda Goodman and then after that encountering Mary Baker Eddy and then after that encountering Amy Semple McPherson and Sojourner Truth and Marie Laveau and all of these people began to give me a way to think kind of creatively about my own theology, which is something that I think I had felt disempowered in previously. And looking at and engaging with these women's stories I think slowly started to make me feel like there was room for me to be an interpreter and a religious thinker and to not, you know, sort of have to settle for theology that felt diabolical to me. (laughs) For Shirk, each of the women she researched seemed to be responding to deep and urgent questions at exactly the time she personally needed them. But one woman stands out as particularly important. The very last figure, the very last prophet that I ended up writing about chronologically and also pretty much the way it shows up in the book in terms of the timeline was Marie Laveau, who was the ostensible founder of American voodoo and lived and worked and practiced in New Orleans 
from early 19th century up through the late 19th century um, as a mambo conjurer, um, but also a community organizer, like prison activist, uh, property and business owner, nurse, and overseer of a enormous multiracial, multi-class following, including the carrying out of lots of different annual ceremonies um, where every single cast of person who existed in 19th century New Orleans would go. Um, and we're talking about a community she created that simultaneously contained slaveholders and those who were enslaved, free people of color, poor people, white people, really wealthy white people, men, women, all ages. You know, her dominion, her, her ministry included all of those people and creating these sites that brought all of those people together. She became, for me, the kind of culmination of everything that writing this book had led me to. And the fact that I arrived at her and found her <laughs> at the time in my research that I did really helped. <laughs> it was the perfect timing because everything about her work um, and everything about her ministry and everything about her personal history seemed to almost embody everything, all of the challenges and contradictions and and issues of erasure and, and systemic silencing and prophetic vision and syncretic, you know, mixed religious practices um, that all of these women I had looked at before her um, had done. So, so she, she became in some ways the, the most important figure for me in, in a way because I don't, I don't know that I would have been able to bring all of the sort of threads of the book and all of the threads of my own inquiries together without her. The introductory essay of the book is called A Declaration of Sentiments. The author is joined by two friends for a road trip to the Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls, New York. That's where the first women's rights convention was held in 1848. The three of them sat on the pews together and recited the Declaration of Sentiment. It's the document that came out of that convention and outlined the rights American women should be entitled to as citizens. Here's Adrienne Shirk reading from that part of And Your Daughters Shall Prophesy. I did not ask my friends what we were doing there in Seneca Falls, what we hoped to make or make contact with, because in some unspoken way I knew. During graduate school, when the three of us lived in Wyoming, we occasionally observed Witch Night. Witch Night included tarot readings and chakra clearings, making soup, workshopping our writing, smoking cigarettes, giving thanks to the Virgin of Guadalupe, troubleshooting cures for ovarian cysts and other reproductive woes, really anything that needed doing, ritual or otherwise, under lamplight, with women. We never really codified what should happen on those nights, but it made a sort of internal sense— Winters were long in Laramie, and there was always some burdensome masculine energy of the mountain west that needed counteracting. But meanwhile, my instinct toward the magical, the occult, the feminist, ran up against my participation in various patriarchal churches. During the years of witch night, I found myself attending a non-denominational church plant, 
the liberal synod of the Lutheran Church, and a Catholic Newman Center. But it had always been that way, my compulsion toward and resistance to religious institutions always rendering me somewhere in the fray. Like so many Anglo-Americans, my family's religious history is amorphous, especially being from Oregon, where long ago those pioneers had thrown off the mantle of the old dogmas for new ones. Plus, we had been Americans for eight generations already, on both sides, whatever that means. And by then my flaky ancestors had tried out every American religious fad you could think of, an experiment that ended in atheism. Growing up, religion did not matter, especially when it came to being a liberated woman. That was my social education. And yet by the time I found myself at twenty-seven in the Wesleyan Chapel with my friends, I had long since begun to interrogate this. For years I had cycled rockily through one cosmology to another, secular humanism, New Age paganism, Lakota shamanism, Unitarianism, Protestantism, Catholicism, and a handful of non-denominational church plants that congregated in the basements of high schools and beat-up storefronts, only to find myself again, nearly a decade later, in the same weird spiritual no-man's land in which I had begun. Or was it the same? It seemed this time that religion did matter, must matter, in America and elsewhere, especially where women are concerned. Since the 1960s, the fastest-growing U.S. Christian movements have been the most virulently conservative, throwing their energies into vile, insipid causes mostly having to do with women or sex in one way or another. Fundamentalism is its own religion entirely. It understands the Bible as a divinely inspired document to be read, with great incoherence, literally, rather than as a very old library. And during my lifetime, fundamentalism has monopolized American religious thought, tearing it from progressive action, where, historically, Abrahamic theology has seen better days, mostly, maybe always, within the most marginalized communities. The civil rights movement, the sanctuary movement, the suffragists, the abolitionists, the leftist Jewish diaspora— so, the monopoly of the pulpit, an important line from the Declaration of Sentiments, whatever kind it may be, cannot remain uncontested, not ever, but especially not now. Religious literacy is one way out from under the thumb of fundamentalism, but constructing new literacies is another. And that project of constructing new literacies is a large part of what Shirk hopes writers and readers will take from the book. I hope that something the book offers to writer-readers are different forms and then f hopefully forms that inspire new forms I haven't even thought of yet for them to conduct research and to think about um, the role of subjectivity and a first-person narrator, you know, within the context of of research and exploration. And I, I hope it, like, inspires even more strange, weird <laughs> maybe even um, irresponsible uh, hybridity and blending and and adapting of of the conventions of scholarship and journalism and fiction and essay and poetry. Um, and I think I I think on another level I hope that the book inspires or makes people think about who has interpretive authority, not just within Christianity. Um, but within whatever institution or world or context you live in, 
one of the big arrival points in the book for me, and it was not something I was even thinking about at the beginning, but was how much of the interest and importance that these women's lives had for me had so much to do with the ways that they revealed the artifice of the interpretations of of things that we basically accept. Again, the interpretation of of scriptures, the interpretation of holy texts, the interpretation of laws, um, and how much those interpretations like depend upon, you know, just like eons and eons of of erasure or patriarchal power brokering or whatever, and how much room there is, and you know, and maybe even how both like liberatory and risky and all of these things it is to destabilize the interpretations that we tacitly accept on a day-to-day basis and position other people or ourselves as interpreters, as legitimate heirs um, of interpretation. And I think this really matters when it comes to religion. And I think really matters when it comes to women and when it comes to queer people. I guess specifically, I would hope that women and queer people not that those are mutually exclusive categories, um, could walk away from, from my book feeling like they too actually have access to interpretive authority and do not need to be subject to diabolical interpretations um, of religion. <laughs> I think that's a really big one for me. That's Adrian Shirk. This episode was produced by Teo Basquiat. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.